Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre. Sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. This particular recording is the edited interview. We also have longer uncut versions available on our website along with show notes to accompany each episode so you find out more about all the ideas, people and books mentioned in the show. Margaret Broadbent is a Melbourne-based Sister of Mercy and artist who carries within the mystical vision of Hereditas, Hildegard's greening power of all things. After wanting to be an artist from the age of six, Margaret's dream was put on hold while she joined the Sisters of Mercy in the post-Vatican II era and became a teacher. Years in the wilderness of the great sandy desert with an Aboriginal community, solitary time in the cathedral ranges and adventures into Russian iconography were transformative experiences that are still taking expression in her artwork today. Margaret told us about a new phase for her life as an artist she's entering now, explorations into the tree of life. We spoke to Margaret via Zoom from her studio in Hampton East. So welcome to Thresholds, Margaret Broadbent. Thank you, Sally. It's it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. A pleasure to have you with us. I think you're the first artist that we have actually interviewed, so it's exciting for us. So I just want to start off by asking you to share any of those early stories from your childhood that are memories that you can recall that have helped you to to end up where you are right now. So something like your your spiritual or religious upbringing and how that might have impacted your way of being in the world. Mm, okay. Um, yes, there are many, many, um, but probably the ones I'll share with you are the, the main ones that have never gone. You know, they've just stayed with me all my life, uh, and spir- especially from the spiritual dimension. And one would be when I was around, between the years of 10 and 12. Um, For me, home was a battleground (laughs) and uh, growing up. Um, So around 6 o'clock every morning, I would just wake up. I lived in Nidri, which was sort of in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And I'd just wake up and uh, just quietly, there are five children, mum and dad, but I just uh, creep out of the house, find my bike, and just ride up to the local church, which was an old army hut in those days. Mm. And um, so no alarm to wake me. I just awoke. But I'd always go into this little phone booth box in those days and just, I can't remember, it was something like MOQ96. You'd dial those numbers just to get the time to (laughs) see what it was. And I'd go and just sit on the front step of the the old army hut and wait for the priest to open the front door. And uh, so you could imagine six o'clock, it was quite dark in the morning. And so in I'd go and just sit quietly in one of the seats and mass would start. There'd be what I considered in those days very older people in the church and I was, you know, the youngest. But... Um, I was just aware of that. But, yes, I'm just thinking the interior at the time was quite dark. You know, you had the mystery of the 
the candles up on the altar, all lit, so lights coming from there. And there was this window in this little old army hut and the sun uh, would come through, the rays of the sun would come through at a certain time during the mass. And I was always alert to this for some reason. And uh, I think home being a battleground, um, this was almost like the complementary world for me of um, peace and quiet and harmony, stillness. And I don't know, I just, the love of the Eucharist started to grow during those early years for me. And I just became lost in time and liturgy. And, and I still am at this time mm. in my life. So that's one. And then I'd say the second one, um, my mum took me to this movie called Quo Vadis mm-hmm. uh, in Mooney Ponds. And it was one night we went, well, just the both of us, I, th- I was about 12. And uh, I looked up the title later, Where Are You Going is, is the meaning of Quo Vadis. But the main part of that movie that never left me was all these Christians being fed to the lions in mm. the Colosseum. And you know, I was sitting in the movie theatre just looking at this and thinking, oh, my goodness, the, the pain and the struggle. It was like, in some ways, the battlefield at home, mm. but not as bad. But um, so, and there were these two women, Perpetua and Felicity. I can still remember their names mm. being, you know, just facing up to these lions. And they weren't afraid to die as Christians. And I knew then, and I'm thinking, hmm. I could give my life as a Christian. I could. Uh, I wouldn't be afraid to die like these. And I was really convinced of that when I was 12 years old. Mm. So I think out of that came. Um, I didn't have this fear to to be kind of like a trailblazer or something in the world. Mm. You know, go, just go for it and and face the face the lions or face um, whatever comes. You know. So, so that was very strong. How did um, that be? How did that end up taking expression by becoming a sister of mercy? Oh, um, it's interesting because, it, in a way, it felt like truly. It really felt like when I entered the uh, sisters, the the whole formation time was like being in. For me. Uh, well, on one level, it was like being in a den of lions. It's such a different world to enter into and the kind of formation and, and the way of, of life of an novitiate at the time was, ah, oh, <laughs> it was not an easy, it was a battleground in another way as well. And uh, so moving out of that, and, and the, one of the first books I I started to read about um, uh, concentration camps and all this sort of stuff when I left. And I'm thinking, what what have I just come out of? And so so the beginnings, the formation from home to religious life, it it was almost as if life was going to be like a battleground. And I think life is like that. Mm. And but somehow you learn to face, fight your battles, face your battles, both inside and outside, you know, that's the life. That's And that's what's come into art, I think. It's the constancy of the struggle between light and darkness, which has been my theme ever since I was in that little church in St John Bosco's in Midri. That's the reality of life, you know, mm. death, dying, rising, new life. It's, it's 
that's the battlefield. Somewhere along the line, probably early on, um, you learnt about Hildegard of Bingen, the um, 11th century mystic. Yes. And uh, I read that she became your mentor, teacher and guide. So can you tell us the story behind your relationship with Hildegard? The date that she died was the 17th of September and my, that's my birth date. So that's how I linked in with her. I thought um, what a perfect uh, way from, from her death to a new life. Probably the, those years when I was um, back, back in the 80s, I think, um, when I was looking at uh, Jungian theolo- uh, uh, psychology and uh, reading about um, some of the mystics as well, and I think it was in the reading that I came across Hildegard of Bingen, but once I realised our connection, then I decided that I uh, needed to work a little bit more. So in 2014... I went to Bingen, actually, and met up with the lovely um, Annette Esser, who took a small group of us for a 12-day pilgrimage into the Rhine Valley, into Hildegard's country. Mm. So I walked her paths, went back into the memory of time and got to know where she lived and worked and what she did. Um, So, and, And even just to be in the footsteps of her, you know, even beside this little creek in Rupertswood where she would have just, you know, uh, the, 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 the water in itself. Uh, it just touched in all the things that I love and I just felt an at one with her uh, in time and space, I guess. Mm. So that, that sort of, that's the connection, that's the mentor. And I think her bravery with the, in the church, she wasn't afraid to speak her mind um, about certain things, and you know, she'd certainly tell the Pope or she'd tell bishops, or she was out on the lecture field. <laughs> um, so, I think uh, she's she's a sort of a mentor in the sense of not to be afraid, get out there, you know, and, and really use your voice and through art for me, um, if it's possible, you know. So, mm. Mm. is that linked to your image? Of life as a battleground. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, and when I think of Hildegard and, and uh, her visions, like she had these incredible visions and uh, she was, um, as a young child, she had them and she was too scared to put them out there because, you know, she ridiculed or no one would... Uh, uh, they would think she was quite insane or, or for other reasons unbeknown. Um, but eventually, and she also suffered from depression and uh, got really sick. Um, there are various writings as to what were the causes, like migraines or already um, uh, something in the neuroscientific uh, sphere. But... Once she started to write and once she started to get be creative and to uh, start to um, bring out all of that, those illuminative experiences that, um, well, were given to her, then she became well and she got moving. And I guess I relate to that. Mm. And 
um, I see a similarity uh, and a likeness uh, between us. So in some ways I'm often talking to her and just say, come on, we can do this, I can do this, let's get going, you know. Um, mm. Mm. I want to come back to that later because you had a, an art exhibition or a collection around that concept of veriditas. Yes. Um, but firstly, let's talk about how you actually became an artist because that dream was on hold for a while, wasn't it? It was. It's, isn't it interesting, you know, um, I was around about six when I knew that I wanted to be an artist and, um, and it, it did go underground for a while because the, the art wasn't a subject at school. Uh, in primary or even high school that I went to, you can do art. It wasn't until teacher's college. And I saw that um, I really got to love art and I was doing really well and it wasn't a difficulty at all. And it became clear that at the end of my teacher training and becoming a teacher, qualified teacher, I thought, hmm, now I think it's time to do art. And then when I uh, framed a letter and sent it to the the leader of the uh, sisters at the time, and she said, but Margaret, you've just done your training, your teacher training, go and be a teacher. Mm-hmm. So uh, under obedience, I did. Mm-hmm. And I used, I gave myself for oh, 20 years. I always work in these sort of frameworks. I give myself 20 years and let's see what comes out of it. But then something came up again and I thought, mm, I'll try. And I asked the order again if it's possible to go and study art. No, go and start a, a new school out on Greensboro. So I did that. And then at the end of all of that, I thought, well, I think it, it is time now to really pursue it. And I was pretty convinced if it wasn't going to happen, I'd probably, uh, in my head, I'd leave. But I got the okay to do it. And um, so that's how it sort of all uh, started to take off. Mm. Now, I don't know if that answers your uh, the question, but um, I've travelled along the track a bit. Yeah, and as a teacher, you had some extraordinary experiences out west as well, didn't you? Yes, that's sort of how um, my art really started to grow within me. Yes, I went to the Great Sandy Desert. That was the they were the two final years of my teaching career, <laughs> mm. uh, as such, in that educational sphere. Yes, I um, went to the Great Sandy Desert, a place called Villa Luna, to an Aboriginal community, and it was absolutely wonderful. It was just an incredible place to be. So um, I was trying to take my teaching skills, coming out of being a principal, and um, working with these gorgeous little kids. But uh, it was like, you know, the mindset was of, the Eastern Eastern, um, Victorian school system and coming up into the Great Sandy Desert with this mindset Mm. and trying to fit myself into a a completely different framework. But um, it was very difficult, actually, because you had had people from um, Perth education uh, authorities and from... Darwin saying, well, this is what you've got to teach and this is how you've got to teach it. But the reality was so different and I could see it. Mm. But to actually have the courage and the strength to follow what I could see was quite quite uh, 
difficult and demanding. So, um, mm. yes, I was up there for two years. Mm-hmm. This is in the 1980s? This is in the 1980s. 1987, 1988, mm-hmm. yes, those two years. But um, my love of the uh, people, um, Aboriginal people, and I was given my skin name on the second day, so I felt like I really belonged to the community. They were mm. such a beautiful community, about 100 um, uh, in the community. And um, But I guess that's where my art started, as I said, and I came back home with a pocket full of artworks. Mm. And, uh, and so, and so the, that was the beginning of um, my art journey, really. Mm, it seems like something of the landscape as well as the human community, um, perhaps both, must have really been working away inside of you to come up with something new, perhaps transformative. It was. It really was because it was almost as if I had to go to the desert to see where my next direction was going to be. Mm. And I had no idea when I went to the desert that that, that would uh, come about. And it was only, um, it's kind of biblical, isn't it? You mm. know, um, so. um, a call to go to the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that song, the wilderness will lead you. Mm. And I'm thinking it's only now when you go back into it. But uh, yeah, yes. Hosea, Hosea, the wilderness will lead you to your heart where I will speak. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it was almost as if that um, that time with the Indigenous people, the Aboriginal people, the community um, and the land, um, because I'd already been going bush with my dad and my brother. We used to go camping uh, every year almost. So to the big, white, open, red earth of this continent, um, it just opened up new uh, cosmic understandings and visions of, of, of a world that I'd never seen down in the city. So, uh, and also the Aboriginal people were teaching me a lot of their um, mm, insights and they were sharing their stories and I was learning how the land is, is so much part of them and they are so much part of the land. Without the land, they become sick, they, be, mm. they lose themselves. And for me, being in the, in the suburb, um, I, had, uh, I had no idea of all this and that's when it began to, I began to realise when I was learning to paint up in Warman community with Hector telling me, Margaret, now you have to make your mark and they were painting their bungle, bungle dreamtime stories and I'm thinking, I just have a, a house with a fence and a backyard. What's my land? What's my country? And I just thought, I, ha- I don't have it. I, have, I don't have this kind of way of life or, or, or story. And uh, so I, I realised that the Aboriginal people um, have the story and what is my story. So then began a journey into, well, um, 
where do I go? How do I learn? What what do I do? So art help has helped me along the way to do that, mm. to express some deep understanding, I guess, of what it means to be human uh, in this uh, planetary cosmic realm with others, you know. It's hard to put language around it, really. Mm. Well, it's yeah, that's the benefit of being an artist. You don't have to use language so much, do you? <laughs> exactly. You're exactly. expressing it differently. That's- yeah. That's it. I remember one of my paintings uh, came out of um, Alice Springs. You know, when you go through the gap, mm. there's a gap there, and you, what, Margaret, who's a, an Aranda elder, said to me, Margaret, you've got to get into the land and go and listen to the voice in the land. Mm. So, okay, so you go through the gap and you go into the land, go to But as you're going along the, that track, um, you feel the energy, you feel the, uh, the life. But, sorry, going back to the gap, on the edge of the gap on either side of the McDonald Ranges, there are, two, oh, there are two faces and they're ancient elders. And I took a photo of it. When I looked at it, I just thought these two are having the greatest conversations of who have come through this gap, time immemorial, time past and are telling stories that Aboriginal people know only too well and people like myself um, have no idea. But but you can see it. You can actually see the faces in the land. And uh, I began to see that at Uluru as well in different sections and different parts. And so the whole notion of storytelling, of narrative, became really strong as well. Mm. So the land really speaks to you, you know. Mm, mm. Mm-hmm. A few years ago I saw your exhibition Veriditas that I mentioned earlier and Veriditas is um, associated with Hildegard. So coming back to Hildegard and um, ha- how did you end up um, with that exhibition and with this flowing out of you? Uh, I got invited by, um, I think at that, at that time, uh, Macaulay Ministries was... Um, starting and they were, uh, sisters were looking around at, at different people and inviting people to come into Macaulay Ministries and I was invited to come in because of my art practice and it was at that time that I thought well why not set up a little business mm-hmm. and um, so and I think it was Hildegard of Bingen and the greening power that uh, and, and and all that had gone on. So I, I was often speaking to Hildegard and saying, well, let's do it, hmm. you know, let's start up something. So, um, and, of course, going back into Matthew Fox, his early stages of writings, I just loved his writings. Hmm. And I really felt he had a, a really good grasp of, of uh, so many... Um, things of Hildegard. So he, a lovely book. So I decided that I would um, choose Veriditas um, because the whole notion of greening power of life and the, the God, the mystery, love in all it, of its fullness, 
was there, and also Matthew Fox. He he also said that um, it was all about waking up the world, and it's and and I was aware that Pope Francis at the time called for. This is interesting, consecrated men and women to also wake up the world and to be witnesses to a different way of doing things, of acting, of living. So it was around that time this was coming. These were calls, these were awarenesses, and I just thought, no, it has to be veriditas. And unknowns, you know, to what was coming further down the track, it's so right. Any other kind of art and uh, will come out of now veriditas. That's... Mm. For the for the last phase of my life, I think mm. this next phase. No, it's my next phase. I'll say it like that. Mm. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about a couple of your phases. I mean, I know the Veritas exhibition. A lot of those paintings use geometric patterns to express this, the greening power of all things. Um, what is it about uh, using such patterns for you? What What's the story behind that? Yeah. See, patterns, like when patterns are psychological, they're, but when you look at nature, when you go into nature, you see the, the patterns. You look at snakes, the patterns are there. Patterns are in trees, leaves. The subtlety and, and the intricacies of patterns. And, of course, they're there in nature for us to to behold, but they're also in life and in, in all of us. We establish our patterns of life, don't we? And we follow the patterns. And at certain times we have the battlegrounds happening again and, and the patterns get broken and uh, you change and grow and move into new patterns. And I think uh, this is what the greening power, this is what new life is all about. Um I remember at art school in my second year of postgrad, these patterns almost like stained, came from stained glass windows, the colour and the light through the stained glass windows. And it became clear to me that change is needed, breaking the patterns, breaking open the patterns of, um, uh, of a past way of being, of seeing, of doing so that, well, if we want to say new patterns can emerge, but uh, sort of like be careful not to make such uh, boxed-in, closed-in patterns where mm, you just get suffocated, you know, mm. that sort of thing. <clears throat> yeah, and so um, following that, you had, uh, well, I'm not sure actually of the order, the late 90s, I think you started your adventures in Russia and your um, icons um, passion. Is that right? Yes, it, that came out of a call from, uh, well, a, a request really from one of the ladies who came to the art centre. Um, and that was back in 1997. Mm-hmm. And this was at the art centre down at Blackrock, the Mercy Art and Creativity Centre. And I said to her, what do you want to study? You know, what would you like to learn? And she said, I just want to paint icons. Mm. Now, for me, that was just like I had no notion of icon iconography at the time. And I was teaching all the skills that I learned from art school. And after four years, she kept coming every to every class 
And I said to her, Alice, I said, I think it's about time I went to learn how to um, paint icons myself and to understand what icons are all about. So um, we were going to go, uh, the Art Centre of Blackrock finished in 2004 and I had a sabbatical for 2005 and Alice and myself, we were just talking and I said, look, it's time, isn't it, to um, go and for me to learn how to paint icons and I was saying, hmm, why don't we go to uh, Florence? And she said, yes, let's do it. And I, I tell this story that after meditation one morning, after prayer, just the word Russia came into my head mm. and it was like, oh, goodness, this this is totally, you know, out of the field. And we'd already booked into Florence and ready to do the icon course there. So I contacted Alice. I said, I think it's changed, Alice. I think we're called to go to Russia. And Alice is this amazing woman, mother of 12 children, and she said, all right, let's do it. We'll go to Russia. So there was no problem. We were going to Russia. So it then meant that uh, how to find out where to go and learn um, icon painting. And I remember Kathy Solano had come back from Uganda and she said, I, I'll, I'll fix it up for you. I know what to do. So Kathy's at the computer for two hours and she comes back. She says, Mark, I can't do it. Nothing's coming up. I said, don't worry. Thank you. And so I said at the computer, I said, God, you put, you put Russia into my head. So, you know, let's see what happens. I said, I want an icon course in St. Petersburg in Russia. And up came the School of Religion and Philosophy, Natalia Petsiska, the, uh, the rector. So I uh, emailed Natalia and uh, she emailed back and said, yes, we can do something for you. So look, that's how it started. Huh. And uh, like it, it's just grown mm. amazingly ever since then. Mm. Yeah, Natalia's become a great friend of yours and has even made it to Rahamim, which was exciting for us. <laughs> um, but uh, but more than just for yourself as a, as a sister of mercy, I mean, there was a whole pilgrimage to Russia in the end. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> so that happened in 2005. So four of us went to Russia, another sister for a little company of Mary's sister and Alison, who... Uh, sister as well. Um, then in uh, 2007, Philip, who was our teacher in St. Petersburg, emailed me and said, Margaret, would it be possible for me to come and teach iconography in Australia? And I said, I always say yes, yes. And it was then a matter of setting things up, uh, setting a place up where he could come and teach and then uh, finding people to come and do the course. So uh, the first course was done at Bridget's Well in Malvern in um, 2000, 2008. So uh, from that time on, um, Philip and his wife, Olga, have been coming to Melbourne. We transferred to ACU, who have taken it on beautifully. So the ICON courses have been running at ACU for over 10 years. and. I think over 600 people have come mm. each year to the classes from all over Australia, New Zealand and, Singa and Singapore. Wow. Uh, so 
And I've handed that over now. ACU have taken that up and it's still continuing. So it's really good. And the other thing is now um, working with Natalia for the Visions of Beauty, that's been absolutely amazing. So another group this year, in 2018, we had 23 sisters that uh, went. So it's been a, a, a huge, um, what would you say, it's a, a collaboration between. Mm. Yeah. So the, the 23 sisters made it to Russia and then what what was sort of the um, the underlying purpose of that or the experience that came out of that for them? I think each 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 one in their own way uh, was absolutely moved, and um, their minds and uh, were opened up. Um, in, in for some, it was hard to speak about it, even, and it wasn't until they came home that they could even put words around it. You know? mm. um, uh, and I think it was almost a once in a lifetime. Uh, chance to to go to, into a, a Russian culture where you know we in the West only had the teachings, say from uh, you know communism uh, ideas, from books, uh, that sort of thing. But to actually go into um, different places, to Kremlins, to monasteries, to be instructed in the orthodox way of seeing and living um, and the Russian way to the incredible culture that it is. It's just amazing. I think it just has blown the sisters, you know. But an amazing thing happened to the group in Novgorod. I, I, I believe that it's really brought us together as a group and something happened and I could sense it and from that time on, we, we really became a, a group uh, of sisters from all over Australia but becoming one. You know, it mm. was an incredible um, moment, I think, mm. and, it, and it did. It happened. So, yeah. For those who haven't really experienced an icon, like what is it, what is the experience of an icon? What is this way of seeing that so moves us? I think it's the when you go into, say, a, a church or a monastery, it's the beauty, it's the, it's the incredulity of, of the, the vision, of, um, mm, and if if you can be in the presence and just, uh, how can I say, um. You have to ha try and t get rid of preconceived ideas of artworks, of paintings, or whatever, and just just be. It maybe it's different for every person, but I suppose for me, when I first started, it was painting. Uh, I I, li I really liked the Italian style of iconography, and it, it was more the humanist. You know the. Um, the humanity of of the the Christ and Mary and the way it was all painted, I really loved the Italian style. The Russian style and the Greek styles were put a little bit of fear into me, and I 
all sort of stood back. And, and it wasn't until I actually stood in Russia and, and I was able to understand perhaps a little bit more the history and the severity sometimes of, of the relationship between the, um, the images that it took me into another world, and it, and it really does. You, and I, I think that's the mystical world of the East, mm. and I think icons really do it uh, in that way. That's the gift. Um, so, and a, a lot depends, like Rublev, one of the greatest Russian iconographers, um, a monk in a monastery, and and the spirituality and the uh, understanding of of the mystical realms, I suppose, it certainly comes out into the uh, into the artwork, into the paintings, into the icons that he has produced over the time, and you can tell the difference between certain icons and what's within, you can feel it, you know, you can really see it. Yeah, there's something about that. Um, I think someone's described it as like a window into that mystical realm, which is almost impossible for us to describe in words, isn't it? It is. And I think we Westerners, mm. that's what we do. We try mm. and put words around. Yes. And, and, and they're in these books, you know, you, you look it up when you're first learning about icons. Where do you go? You go to a book and they have, oh, you have to write icons or you have to, it's, a, it's like a window in. But no, once you, once you are actually there as a human being, like it, with, with Russian people and you are part of and you are in the space, in the church, and the, the, the liturgy might be in, um, going on beautiful mm. singing and beautiful music. Um, mm. There is something, there is something, yeah, the mystical side, uh, even that, to talk about that um, would take a while as well. But mm. I think we tend to get a language and put it over to make it clear so that we can describe it to other people. But the only way really to, to understand is to be in it, to go into it and experience it. But I guess we have to, we have to, put a language frame around everything but and I think that's the beauty of these visions of beauty programs that Natalia's been putting on that we do get a chance to experience all these things that she offers which many many um, tourists wouldn't be able to mm. to have. Yeah and apart from the inspiration that you obviously take deeply deeply within you from from the built environment, from those places of beauty. I can see in a lot of your work really great inspiration from the natural world as well and that it's obvious to me that times out bush have really nurtured your spirit um, and given you something. So what is it, what's arising for you next in terms of your next phase? Mm, just hearing you say that took me back to a month that I stayed in the cathedral ranges by myself with two tents, a car, a mobile that didn't work, and some food. And 
your your words have almost said to me, Margaret, get back out into the bush <laughs> and just be in it again. Um, it's when I'm out in the bush or out in the desert or I'm in the land that I start to see things, start to see things clearly. So I say the next phase for me will be going back be nice, wouldn't it, to go back to our springs and get back into the, the heart of the country up there. Mm. But it doesn't really matter. There's so much beauty around anyway. But just so my next phase will be to get back into um, uh, into into nature once again. And I, look, I have two experiences um, that are urging me on into it. Is the whole notion of the greening. So it's interesting. Last um, Ash Wednesday, I think it was last year, the year before, you know, you have this big black cross put on your forehead. And I, at the end of Mass, I was thinking, oh, I'd really like to go and have a coffee and you know, just relax a bit. And I thought, I can't go into the coffee shop with this big, huge, big black cross on my forehead. So I rubbed it off in the car and I thought, that's enough. So I had the coffee, driving back home, turned around one street and just stopped the car. And this really happened. And this whole, uh, this tree on the right, I just looked at it and it was as if there was a green cross. And I had this dialogue then between, um, well, say God, the mystery. And it was like, well, what are you feeling, Margaret? I'm saying, I feel really badly that I rubbed the cross off my forehead. And, okay, well, what do you see now over there? I said, I see a green cross in that tree. And it was as if to say, well, that's where you've got to go now. It's the green cross. It's not a black cross, which is death and dying. It's the green cross of new life. And then when I um, was completing a, a commission about Mary McKillop for Sacred Heart Church in Sandringham, I was out in the backyard and uh, it just so happened that I was, I'd finished varnishing the well, it was sort of like a contemporary icon in a way. And I don't know, all of a sudden the elements seemed to come together and there was this movement inside this cross, which I have in the central part of the icon, and it was like a pulsating heartbeat. And it was the interplay of the, the wind and the leaves on the tree and the light. And it was almost felt like I was like Hildegard being and a bit of an illumination into... Um, yeah, it was it was as if those pulsating beats became the heart of God or something, you know, and it was something to pursue in the future. So these are my little lights that are, are taking me now to this next mm. phase. Mm. It's, uh, it seems to align quite closely with some of the current trends threads that we're picking up in contemporary theology as well the um the critiquing of the cross as a symbol of atonement and and the glorification of suffering unquestioningly uh versus the tree of life um so it's really beautiful to see that you're giving an expression to that mm. look isn't it it's just interesting that you know, we're so, we're so, uh, how can I say, 
the notion of this uh, need for us to really take on climate change, to reduce you know, carbon emissions, to live simply, the call to live simply and sustainably. Um, to, and, and it's as if, you know, we are being opened up to the natural world, uh, not for the first time, you know, farmers and those on the land have, have already had it, but, or have it. Um, but it's uh, I, when that, um, the care of the land, the care of the earth, is it the care of the, the cry of the, the land, the, the cry of the poor came through. I just thought, you know, a new theology, and I'm looking up eco-theology, integral theology, I'm seeing these words coming through. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're crying for something new, something that is more life-giving, something that is not death-dealing. And uh, I had this notion about climate, climate change, and, you know, it just, just hit me that we need not to look just for out there climate. We also need to look at the climate in oneself and in the groups, institutions, churches, and our tribal societies and all of that. There's a whole climate within that needs to be changed. And um, so I think that the whole world is... is uh, Climate change is not just the, the green emissions, but a whole new climate needs to be looked at. Mm. Uh, and, you know, violence is there. Violence and death is, is happening all the time. So I don't know. There's, um, I think it's that call to conversion. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a world call. It's not just a Christian call. It's not just a... a it's a, it's a world call to to journey together within and without. Um, and I think personally that the first peoples of our land, the Aboriginal people, uh, they have there such a, you know, 60,000 years of knowledge and understanding and yet are we tapping into it? How are we tapping into it? We, I don't think we are. I think you know, we Westerners just go ahead and, you know, oh, okay, let's get up at Echo Theology. Let's, you know, mm. let's write books about it. Let's, you know, have conventions or uh, about these sorts of theologies. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, we just, we've got to get together. We've got to work together. Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's almost like there's a there's a real call for us to develop that inner mystic, which is universal. As you said, it's not any one religion. It's in it, all of us. It's in all of us. That's right. And all of us have stories to tell. And, uh, you know, like Hildegard of Bingen, who thought she didn't have much to say. Uh, she was too scared to say it. I think, there, you know, we could all be like that and say, Oh well, who believed me? What mm. have I got to say? Or you think the battlefield is there, and you know, others mm. saying, "Oh, who does she think she is?" Or mm. he is, you know, saying what this. But we have to get through all of that, and we have to sit down quietly and just listen to our stories. 
in a in a gentle way, not in a violent uh, way. You know, um, sort of. Yeah, that's that's. I remember Mary Jane up in Gid River saying to me, Marco, we have to be. You just got to be gentle, you know. She works with the Aboriginal people up there, and she's been there for years. And uh, so, and Nate, you know, I just think that's that's what how we've got to go in that mm. way. So, what sort of process are you are you using at the moment as you contemplate this new phase? Looking mm-hmm. looking into this, um, what sort of practices or? Um, yeah, processes do you personally use and find important? Uh, the first, the first one is my morning meditation. It's first off, and uh, so I just do that. I've got a little room, light a candle, and I have the surrounding um, sounds of birds every morning, mm. and so I'm in nature where I am. I'm lucky to be here in this little place. So, and that's a half hour, and I make notes about anything that rises up as a result of that, mm. and then just quietly, you know, just go about my daily business then. So, um, you know, just eating, um, I might just uh, make notes of what I've got to do for the day or the night before and just follow through. So. Sometimes it's I might have a commission of artwork, so I move into that, um, and I try and finish that by five o'clock. Which and then I have another time of meditation, just quiet time for another half an hour. In between times, I might go for a, a, a walk. I try. I have. To, I know I have to get some physical work in now. I'm getting older, so hmm. I haven't balanced my life yet. I probably have to do it work out a new process but of swimming and exercise um then at the moment because russia with the visions of beauty they're still planning going on in the evening there but i like in the evenings just to relax and take things quietly so at this stage i like to do some reading then as well just to reflect and to see what comes comes in so I'm I'm really in uh, uh, how can I say a new phase of getting this when well, I call it my last phase really together. So I, I can't really give you uh, a proper outline, but look, that's just a general outline of mm. what's happening. Well, mm. we'll wait with great anticipation to see this next <laughs> phase. I hope oh, it's not thanks. your last. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> Yes, I think after I finish this icon that I'm doing for one of the sons of Mary, I'll um, mm. just quietly work out something and maybe pass it on to you then. That sounds great, yeah. Mm. But maybe as a little hint, you, I think you had some writings to share with us on the Tree of Life, is that right? Oh, I've got some, yes. There's, there's this lovely book by David George Haskell and it's called The Song of the Trees. And see, I love trees, and I know I'm. How can I say? You know, you leave the city and all this concrete, uh, concrete jungle of buildings and that. Go on a road, and then all these trees are there. It's like they're beckoning you to come in and be with them, come home. You know, come home. So um, 
So David Haskell, I think one of one of his quotes here, he says, living memories of trees manifest in their songs. And I'll, I'll just keep going. They tell of life's community, a net of relations. We human beings belong with conversation as blood, kin, and incarnate members. And, you know, sitting with that and looking into it, um, I just uh, smile, really. Living memories of trees mm. manifest in their songs. And one could say, how on earth do trees sing? <laughs> you know, but they do. Yeah. But but they, their wind instrument, they have a wind instrument. So um, their leaves, um, they do make their own kind of song, like a didgeridoo, but maybe softer. Um, also, uh, yes, he talks about trees. Tree songs emerge from relationship, which I find interesting. We're all... Trees, humans, insect, birds, bacteria, we're all pluralities, he said. But I also uh, remember reading about the trees, this community of trees. And when disease started to happen to one tree, um, that tree would let the others know that mm. the disease is there. So, And then the others would start to develop some... Oh, I don't know the language of trees and, and their operations, but they would start building something within them to um, counteract mm. the disease that was happening in the other. And also probably through the root system, try and help this other tree to um, deal with this disease. So mm. there's so much we don't know, so much that um, we still have to learn, you know. Um, was that in Peter, Peter Woodleven's book, Hidden Life of Trees? Is that where you wrote about that? Uh, look, it could be. Uh, I think part of me has so much in my head that mm. I, I just can't remember who, who, but mm. I've written it down in a book that I have, a mm. green cover. Could be. So, um, and that whole tree of life, not just tree but of life um, and Eddie says life is an embodied network and these net living networks are where ecological and evolutionary tensions between cooperation and conflict are negotiated and resolved mm. so trees of life the, uh, I guess it goes back to the battlefield again isn't mm. it just interesting you know um, that concept so um, I just think living networks, you know, it's it's that's where it's all what it's all about. It's living networks, and somehow to sustain that life, to encourage new life, um, is probably what my next phase is about to mm. encouraging the young to go for it and. Uh, to go for new life, you know. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your your inner workings, if you like, your inner life, 
with us in how you you know you're moving into this next phase that's um, really beautiful well we have to wrap up soon I think Margaret but was there anything else that um, you'd like to share with us how can people get in touch with you or find out more um I well I do have the website mm-hmm. and I've been slack with that I have put many images on and it's just a time thing for me I've been doing too many other things I think probably the website is is the best way yeah get onto my website and contact me I'll answer the emails that come through wonderful yeah it's a very beautiful website with um, so many examples of your work uh, which I just love (laughs) so uh, yeah really recommend people take a look at that as well as listening to your voice (laughs) and um yeah, I just I just want to thank you, Margaret, for being such an inspiration to so many who really love your artworks and for them it really is a doorway into that mystical realm and into um, a realm beyond the human, you know, like the mm-hmm. ecological whole community of life seems to mm-hmm. flow through your work and um, I thank you so much for that. Well, it's, it's my pleasure and it's a, it's a delight, Sally, to, to be talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to their elders, past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim.org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.